You're listening to The Agile CTO, a podcast geared toward technology professionals, disruptors, and thought leaders. This show will aim to cover industry trends, new technologies, the life of a CTO, building dev culture, stories from some of today's leading CTOs, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. And we are back with an interview on the Agile CTO podcast. We're super excited for you guys to listen to this one today. Uh, our guest, Andrew Baker, is a bit of a, you know, a scrapper. Um, just getting started out in, in his career. He's got a couple of things under his belt, like <laughs> being a CTO of the ABSA Group and CTO at Barclays. And he's now the director of engineering at the Amazon Elastic Compute Cloud. So, you know, Guy and I had to give him, give him some pointers about, his, uh, about where he should go with his career and what he should focus on. Uh, Guy, do you have anything to say about Andrew? Yeah, such an interesting guy. I mean, I, mean, I worked with him briefly in a, in a previous job and uh, my experience of him has, been, has always been one of admiration. I think his, his career has got some spectacular stories in it. And we, we, we could have gone on with this interview for three, four hours, but we had to cut it short. There's some areas in there that I would have loved to have dug more into. So we spoke about his, his journey into cloud native. We spoke a bit about Kubernetes. His life as a high-frequency trading manager and the journeys around, around some of the complexities and some of the failings of the exchange in the early days, uh, particularly around 2010. We spoke about his early career. Interestingly, he was a geostructural engineer in his early part of his career, which is weird. And uh, what else did he say, Holly, was his, his early role, one of his very, very early jobs? I think he worked in a very small... Uh, anyway, it doesn't really matter. Let's dive, let's dive into it and let's... He started when he was 10. started when he was 10. started working when he was 10, exactly. All right, let's dive into it. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to another episode of the Agile CTO podcast. I must say that it feels good today to have a guest again. The past couple, we've been doing some roundtables, and while they've been a lot of fun, and Guy and myself get to speak a little bit more, I have missed the the esteemed guest that we've had in the recent the recent podcast. Guy, do you want to uh, speak about our guest today? I know you have a history with Andrew. Yeah, so welcome, Andrew. Andrew Baker is joining us today. Yeah, Andrew and I worked together previous life, maybe about a million years ago. We worked on a project at Barclays. Well, actually, Andrew was the client and our team was there without going into too much detail around that. It was a very interesting time for sure. And today, Andrew, welcome. Thank you. I'd love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about you your, and, and what you currently do. We're going to dig into some stuff today, but let's just get a, some intro from you. Sure thing. Hey everyone, thanks for ha having me on the show. I'm I'm Andrew Baker. I I worked at Barclays and Absa for I don't know, it's probably about twenty years, and now um, I'm about to start work at AWS uh, in first of November. So, yeah, I'm in, in an exciting change. It's quite an interesting title. It's not just work, I guess. It's Director of Engineering, Amazon Elastic Compute Cloud. So that's the EC2 clusters, right? So, right. what what does it mean? What is it that you're going to be doing? <laughs> Pretty much whatever they ask me to. Uh, that's kind of my philosophy on, on work. I'm, I'm not very domain driven in terms of like where I help. I, I, in fact, the interview process was very funny because I got interviewed for something completely different than what I ended up in. And uh, the guy, when I was speaking to my new boss, he said, what, what do you want to do? And I, I told him I'm a back-end engineer. I'm, I work with FPGA, I, I'm very low level. And he said, well, we've got a problem in the console. You know, we want to want to invest some energy into the EC2 console. I said, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> so um, I don't, you know, and, and Absa was the same. We had a problem with our network and I wanted to fix. So I don't, I don't really, I don't like go into a company for a specific task or a specific problem. The bit that really excited me about AWS is their culture. They've got something, some secret. I haven't tasted it yet. It's like, still two weeks but there's something very unique about it and i can't quite get my finger on what it is so you, you touched on it there andrew yeah, looking after the ec2 console sorry you you touched on it there and i just want to go back okay, to sure. it the interview process like you said you're just starting there and a lot of our listeners you know are, are ctos and while they're not going to be directors of engineering at, at amazon or something like that what is the interview process like for a company of that scale and that magnitude? Do they reach out to you? Or do you see a job listing on LinkedIn? Do you think, you know what, I'm going to go for that? How does it work? That's a great question. Um, I've never experienced so I'm. I think my interviews are pretty tough uh, and deli deliberately so. Not, not to be ugly or unkind, but I really want to decompose the person. In, in technology, 
I, I don't really look at the CV uh, at all um, because we all know, right, the CV is actually not really worth that much at all. It's kind of like a, a grudge purchase. So I just get into the mind of the person and try and figure out, can you solve a problem? And I give quite unrealistic problems, some estimations, a thing that technologies are terrible. So I give, I give them horrible estimation problems, one, one of which I can talk to you about in a minute. But the AWS process, I think I had... 16 interviews i'm guessing now and it went from extreme technical which i really enjoyed actually and to be honest with you i wasn't expecting it so i i i i am a technologist i'm not really i wouldn't naturally describe myself as i'm not i see myself as a leader although you know i end up in leadership roles i'm more kind of hands-on and i thought i was going to walk it but i but it was they went for it i mean they went quite low level uh, we ended up talking about DNS, different types of storage media, different consistency models. I was like, okay. And I was enjoying it. I was thinking this is the first time in 10 years, 15 years, that somebody's actually stretched me technically. And then there was a lot on culture. And, and I'd say I'd say like four or five of the interviews were, were technical. And, and I found them not, I actually didn't find them that easy. There's one guy, and I'm going to reach out to him when I joined AWS, that, that, that tripped me up um, with a really simple question. I, I, I overthought it and I was quite happy with it. I thought, and he, yeah, he had really good knowledge on um, Elastic Map Reduce and I thought I did. And I hadn't studied it before my exam, uh, before my interview, sorry. Uh, I was in the process of kind of learning how EMR works in AWS and he, he, yeah, he, he did some very clever questions with that. So, and then the rest of it, yeah, as I said, was very cultural. How do you get things done in a big organization? And they kept, even my, even my references, the people I gave as references, they interviewed them. They actually like, what did, what exactly did Andrew do? You know, so it's not, it's not normally you, when you do a reference, like, yeah, he worked here for five years. He's a good, he's a good, you should hire him. Right. Mm. They don't do that. They like properly get into it. If you give a reference to AWS, you are going to be interviewed. So I was blown away by the culture of the company from the outside. It was very, it made me very, very curious. And I, I don't leave. I'm not a CTO that, that moves around. I typically stay put. I, I, I like, like working in one organization. So it was a big deal for me to move. Right, right. So clearly it must have been, a, it must have been the right decision. 16 interviews. That is intimidating on a different level. I don't even think Google has that sort of level of complexity in the interview process. But but what I do know of the AWS interview process is that it's notoriously difficult and very, very, very few people make it to the end of it in one piece, emotionally, physically, or otherwise. So congratulations. Well done. That's a fantastic role. That's going to be uh, a feather in a feather with uh, that feather in your cap is, is incredible. But let's talk about your early career. Andrew, you know, I see in your, your, your LinkedIn page, you're a geostructural engineer between 1996 and 1998. So what is that? Tell us a bit about that. So if, to go from that to, to, you know, director of engineering at AWS, that's, that's got to be a couple of interesting steps in your career to get there. Look, I mean, <laughs> so my very first job, in fact, I was saying to this to my wife the other day, my very first job, I was 10 years old and I made dog food at a butcher's in, in <laughs> in Somerset and that was my first job um you had to get like a special permit to work at that age um and then you could work four hours a week and I, I got that permit and I worked and then I cleaned industrial size freezers then I worked at Woolworths then I so since 10 actually until August this year I've never not worked it's like it so I've worked all the way through and I didn't I never cared cared I never thought about a career I never thought about anything. I just figured, like, what am I in? What am I'm bored? What what would be interesting now? Geostructure. So what I start. I, I went to see my my school teacher. I said, look, I don't know what to do, and I'm older. I think I should do computing. And he said, no, computing, no future in it. A few years ago, uh, you should do. You should be a civil engineer. Um, so I said, all right, I'll do that, and I did it. And and a geostructural engineer, I had to write finite difference models. In those days, you had to write all the calculations by hand. So I, I started off uh, in VB, Visual Basic, uh, writing finite difference models. So you basically draw. I actually did a part of the Jubilee Line extension in London as well. I was yep. involved in some litigation work there where I had to kind of model the Jubilee line going under a recording studio. 
and and figure out why it settled and they'd lost their soundproofing. So that was a really so I've, yeah, I was very mathematical. I, I went to sites. I worked on the second seven crossing. I really enjoyed that that part of my career. Um, some awesome people in in civil engineering. Great, you know, really fun, diverse culture. You go from a like a foreman, a, a labourer to you know like a, a CEO, and all in the one sort of like community. It was really awesome. Fantastic. So you 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 went from that to a smaller startup called Stapro, right? And what did they do? Like senior <laughs> developer role. Yes. Uh, so that that's not an obvious jump. Um, you know, uh, find out different models and things. So uh, so. I, they were above a ski shop in Wimbledon when I, when I was a really proper little start and you had to kind of go through the corridor in the ski shop to go upstairs and you couldn't make too much noise in the day because all the customers were, were kind of downstairs in the ski shop. I don't know if that ski shop's still there. That culture was amazing. I, I, I would say the guys that I worked with there were so good to me. They spent so much time teaching me, helping me think about problems differently. I loved that job. It was like like I've got a few times in my career where I was super happy and that was that was definitely one of them and I put on my when on my leaving due I said the guy that ran it was a guy called Justin Wheatley that I bumped into him at the airport in Cape Town like just randomly and I went and shook his hand and I said thank you so much for the way for the culture that you created so he, and he remembered me so that was that otherwise that would have been really strange that's amazing so Andrew we're kind of covering uh, your your work history. I want to find out about in, in school because clearly from what you've mentioned so far, you have an aptitude for picking things up quickly. You say yes to solving the problem before you even know what the problem is or how to even like figure out that technology. Were you the same in school? Was school something that interested you? Were you an academic or were you, you know, beyond that world? <laughs> so I'd say my, my schooling was um, very bipolar. I was either manic or depressive. And, um, and so when it came to maths and stats, I was manic. When it came to English, I was depressive. Um, so I, 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 I almost didn't get to university because I couldn't pass an English O-level. Um, it took me four attempts to, to, to get that right. And, I, and, I, and the, the biggest thing in my life was when out started doing spell checking. You know, I was like, okay, now I can, now I can have a job, you know, because... <laughs> I, I could I could I could just do maths. It was the only thing I could do, and I could do it at a very low level, very you know, and and very creatively. Maths maths when you're young is quite kind of process driven, but as you get through university, it becomes a lot more creative actually, and 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 quite fun. You know, it's quite complex. So no, I was only good at like three or four subjects at school, and I remember to this day when I sat my AS level in statistics. So, so you, in the UK did A levels, but I, I wanted to like do something on my first year. So I did an AS level in statistics. And my teacher, I remember seeing his face when he, I said, did you get my grade? He said, yes. I got, I think I got either 97 or 98%. And it was the highest in the county. And, and it was like, they were kind of worried if you cheated or something like that. And I was like, what, what? So it felt good to be good at something. But I wasn't good at everything. I, I was. I could play rugby and I could do maths, and that was it. Nothing else. Brilliant. So, so computers obvious choice, right? Yeah, it should have been. But I did. I wandered through engineering, and I don't regret that for a second. That was. I, I learned a lot there, especially a lot of management and leadership skills were very evident in the in the civil engineering industry. Right, Andrew. Your previous role was Barclays, right? So it was. Um... It started off as a development manager, then moving into the head of algorithmic trading. And so, so you've gone from geostructural to software startup above a ski shop to trading inside of a massive multinational bank. So how was that world different to what you had experienced before? Funnily enough, not as much as you'd think. Certainly not in the area that, era that I was involved in high-frequency trading. It became quite corporate and quite regulated, but it wasn't at the start. There are some amazing stories. I'd say, like, I, I think there's a book just on that section of, of my career alone. Without going into too much detail, I, you know, I, I remember when Volkswagen became the most expensive company in the world uh, because Porsche had had some options on it and then... And then, and then when Lehman went bankrupt, the options were split between Nomura and Barclays because Nomura bought the 
uh, if I remember rightly, the Far Eastern operational, no, no, no more about the European operation of Lehman Brothers and Barclays bought the US side of it. And, and long story short, everyone was scrambling to cover um, shorts. Uh, so, so they had to buy a lot, of v, a lot, a lot of VW shares. And the only way to do that was with algorithms because it was like massive quantities. And I remember that was the first time where I saw the power of algorithms because we, you know, the, the, the German exchange was being shut every 15 minutes with volatility holds, just these algorithms fighting out to buy, to get hold of this stock. And you're just watching every 20 minutes, the price went up by 20%. It was, and that went on for days. So it was like, that was quite like being in a movie. We're just watching these machines having to buy hundreds of millions of, of, of dollars and pounds worth of, of VW shares. It's quite crazy. It's incredible. And I think that that sort of high frequency trading thing has taken off to a bunch of, uh, you know, bedroom traders that have got their algorithm that they're that they are um, working on. That's going to make them millionaires one day. So in in our research for this interview, uh, we stumbled across uh, uh, during the time uh, that you're around there in sort of the, the Barclays world, 2010 ish around there, we stumbled across an article which speaks about the big crash of 245, right? So this was like a huge Dow Jones dip that happened in, in 2010. And um, I just wanted to get your take on, on, on that, if there was any sort of interest from Barclays around that time. Um, look, at what, look at, uh, so I think it was the, the, the day that the regulators kind of woke up to, to algorithmic trading. It, you know, and, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, because to be honest with you, you know, three or four years ago, algorithmic trading wasn't really much of a thing. I mean, they, they, they were there, but they were such a small percentage of the market. There really wasn't much to regulate. And so by de- by nature of, of change, the regulators will always follow change. They will never lead it. And so I, I think, you know, there were there had been a few events prior to that where something had happened. And, prior, and after that, you have Knight Capital had some issues. And, you know, they become quite sensational. And then you see when the machines get to work, you know, when they want to do something, whether it's good or bad or indifferent, they, they do it at scale. And, and so so that was the time where I, I had my first kind of proper interactions with regulators talking about algorithms. And I would say there was as much an education between the two parties, you know, to explain what they were and what they were doing. And, and what also stood out as well is that the, and I don't know how much detail you want me to go into that, but the market structure in the US was quite unique at that time. It, it was very fragmented. I think it had seven or eight different exchanges and they had like national best bid and national best offer. And there was no homogenic gates across those exchanges. They all acted independently. So you had a very complex ecosystem with all the banks in front of them, internalizing flow, then tipping that flow into the market and then it finding its way to different exchanges. And I think I think what, what became clear during the flash crash is that something very complicated had been created, but not, and I don't think it, it you know, when you look at nature and you look at ecosystems, you can see sort of some evidence of intelligence, of, 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 of intelligent design. When you, when, when, when you sometimes in technology, when you just build something iteratively and you don't stand back from it and you look at what you've created, you know, it, if it's not, if it's done very federated, you can get very unintended behaviors out of those, out of those kind of complex systems. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. It's that emergent behavior, right? Especially, mm. and I can imagine that must be uh, sort of rife in the financial world around how these things, and I'm sure we're learning every day how these, these, these things are evolving. Maybe for my own stupid monkey brain, if you could give us a, explain it to me like I'm five, two minute overview of what the flash crash was, just for our listeners' interest. Look, so so the, the best ever write-up that I've seen on this was was written by, I think it's Scott Hunsander, uh, and I don't know if I've said his surname properly, and the company is called Nanix, and they, and they really did several very comprehensive papers in the, about what happened, and I... And, and, and so, but at a, at a very, like, you can describe the symptoms because they're very well documented. You can see on Wikipedia as well. You know, so, so what happened was the market's going along happily, you know, no, nothing. And that's what I think freaked everyone out. It wasn't a particularly bad day, you know. There wasn't a lot of bad news in the market. And unexpectedly, uh, in a period of about two minutes, the stock markets dropped by about $8 trillion. And then they recovered. 
and and so seeing on on you know eight trillion is like quite a big number. It's certainly not a number I'll ever earn in my career. And and so That's so what? So short. Yeah, <laughs> you never know. Maybe maybe great. But but like but yeah, when it when it played out, it was like it was pretty 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 huge. And what you saw is like really crazy things happened that created like very difficult things to deal with. So for example, one of the things you saw is that if I'm a broker and I have to create liquidity, say, Guy, you own a company and I have to list your shares and I have to present a bid, you know, I have to buy and sell your shares, right? So I have to be on screen. They call it be on screen. I have to present a quote. So if someone wants to buy or someone wants to sell, there's a price. So now the market starts crashing. And what you saw was a lot of those brokers would put in, they didn't want to buy anything, right? Because the market's crashing. So they would put in a quote of one cent. You know, I'll, I'll buy it at one cent, right? And I think it was, I remember one big consulting company seeing a print come through for that company that was worth $400 a share. In the middle of the flash crash, there was a, but you know, there was a buy order at one cent. Somebody bought that for one cent. Somebody sold it for one cent, obviously. Now you now you imagine you own you own that share and you put a stop loss on that share. You say, look, if it goes under $380, sell it because I don't want to lose. So what you get is like the machines feed the machine. So the, the machine sees a, a, a print come through. This thing is now only worth one second ago, it was worth $400. Now it's worth one cent. I better sell as well. And so so you what should have happened is all the exchanges should have stopped, paused. Yeah, put a timeout in, in there, yeah. circuit breaker in, but they didn't. NYSE paused and all the liquidity went to the minor exchanges and the minor exchanges didn't have enough liquidity. And so, and then all the banks, you know, started to appear to be tipping liquidity into the market because they, you know, they breached their limits. So it was just like a, it was a very, very, and I, I don't know that, I haven't seen it other than Nanex. I haven't. I don't know that everyone still agrees what caused it. So I'm I'm talking from my personal, like what I saw. Right. Uh, right. But it it is an incredibly complicated event. Wow. Yeah. And and just from reading the article, some of the articles, right? There was a story of a guy that was arrested. That was sort of the finger was pointed at him, and he was sort of doing some algorithmic trading from his mom's, you know, spare bedroom in their house. And and it, there was just it, it seems to me that there's a movie in the making around this right and it's 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 so surprising to me that 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 this isn't something that we see more of in the media I guess uh, and do you do you recall from your time at Barclays how the bank reacted to that to that to that scenario was there like a scrambling was there a panic how how, how was it for you in that in that division at that time that was it was pretty pretty intense um, as you as you would imagine so I. I, you know, when I was driving, I was on the tube actually, and I had a BlackBerry. That shows you how long ago this was. And I remember between stops, there's no signal, so I'm like, um, it was quite late at night, and, I'm, and, and and then suddenly I get to like, I can't remember where it was, like Richmond or somewhere, and my phone just went, and it was like hundred messages. I was like, oh, something's happened, and I start reading them, and then <clears throat> there's like a lot of at the start, there was a lot of. Um, misdirection you know we thought it was a certain bank I'm not going to say the name that they, they made a mistake and it didn't turn out to be the case and then it became clear so so the the other thing you have to understand is that algorithmic trading and also that or just other thing that the thing with the Heathrow guy I don't think that was algorithmic trading if I remember rightly he was spoofing he was just presenting large orders to, and he could have done that for a front end. He could have just typed them in. You know, large orders to scare the market. So they kind of, mm. everyone gets a bit. But anyway, yeah. So that's not really algorithmic trading. That's kind of oh. market manipulation. So the, the algorithms in the market, are, in, in my experience, have genuine intent. If there's an algorithm in the market that wants to buy, it's because it wants to buy. If there's one that wants to sell, it wants to sell. And, and it's not really trying to do anything. And it's trying to, in general, do it very subtly. It doesn't want to leave a footprint. Um, so, so yeah, the eventually it came down to, you know, from a Barclays perspective, the the bit that I'm going to repeat in was it, which is in Wikipedia was around a futures trade um, that was done in, with an algorithm, um, and that futures trade was 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 big. It was about four four and a half billion dollars, but that the algorithm that they used was extremely passive. 
And what I mean by that is it didn't take liquidity. It wasn't an aggressive algorithm. Sometimes you have algorithms that are doing things like, you know, aggressively and because they have to. And in this instance, that wasn't the intent at all. It was a passive, it almost made a market. It just quoted a price and if someone took it, then it would quote another price. So it was a very passive algorithm, but it did, it traded volume. It, you know, it was, it was very heavily used in the futures market. And it was on the e-mini, which is the most liquid future in the world. So it, it was doing about 9% of that market, which is very normal. I mean, some days we would do 30% of the market. So by, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing, but obviously if you're a regulator, you're going to look at who are the biggest participants at any point in time to try and understand, you know, what caused the event. And certainly at that point in time, we were, we, we, around the flash crash, all the circuit breakers kicked in on the algorithms and they didn't trade. So they did the right thing, but if you took it over a big enough window, like say five or seven minutes, yes, the, the algorithm was participating. So, yeah, that was that was was a it wasn't it, I wouldn't you know <laughs> it's part of my career that I'm not sure whether I don't know whether that made me better or worse or indifferent, but it definitely helped when later on when I started designing payment systems because I took a lot of the the um, kind of like almost defensive logic that we built into algorithms, into our payment systems. So you'll see it in the, in the media every now and then, one of the banks will duplicate payments and, or they'll, you know, they'll duplicate collections or whatever, and it causes havoc for customers. It's a, it's a very, it's a very uh, a terrible thing if you, if, you're, if, you, you know, if you don't get paid or you get paid twice and then they recall it. So we, we put a lot of the principles from algorithmic trading into, into payment systems. And you'll be surprised just how much complexity there is in something like a payment system. So mm. yeah, it's good. That, that's, yeah. You can go on, you can drill into any part of what I just said. I'm quoting stuff that's on Wikipedia deliberately. <laughs> yep, for sure, for sure. So yeah, Andrew, I mean no offense, but I am wanting to maybe move back to the technical side of things for two reasons. The first one is I can see the sniper laser dot pointer starting to form on your forehead right now. So I think for your safety, we should move on. And the second is that, yeah, for myself, the, the, my knowledge of the financial market extends to watching The Wolf of Wall Street a couple of times and a couple of seasons of the show Billions. So I feel very out of the, the loop in this, in, in this conversation. But uh, my next question, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, is that you're, you're at ABSA and at your, at the first company where you were a developer was very uh, culture-driven. And you went from a startup vibe to you know, speaking colloquially for developers, everyone thinks uh, as banks as the the most corporate, they're going to use technology from the 80s because they don't want to touch anything that's new until it's been tried and tested for 30 years and that type of thing. And, you know, it's it's never the best cultural place because it's all about profits and maximizing efficiency and all that type of stuff. Was that your experience or was there a great culture? Were they using diverse and new technologies? So in general, um, and this is not talking to Barclays or APSA, this is just generally how banks operate. In general, especially global multinational banks will typically, before the cloud, right? So this is before the cloud, they would buy enterprise license agreements with the big, big software houses. And so then any problem that you have, you would use those products whatever those product sets were like and so the bigger bigger companies didn't have great software assets in in my view uh, at that time now you can see that they recognize that in that those very same companies are now going to buy um the they're acquiring the smaller specialized technology companies that have much you know more modern stacks so you can see that playing out so i don't think i'm saying anything that, that will upset anyone so and that and that's how it was at Barclays. You you had probably five vendors, five, five big software vendors, and the answers were had to be found with those vendors. You could code, right? Which is obviously what I did in, in HFT space, but that that wasn't that common. You know, I would say a lot of the stack was vendor fused with another vendor, and then a, and we had a project management team that kind of talked to the two vendors and try and integrate them. And 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 my argument always was that. If you've got two vendors or even one vendor, if you have to hire a team of 20 to, to like have legal sourcing, project plan, to talk to that vendor, right? Rather, don't talk to that vendor, hire 20 developers and build something you actually want. And then you, you and it's not bound by licenses anymore. So, so 
So that and and so 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 everyone says, "Oh, you're a build fan." Not really. There are companies like Salesforce that I I wasn't involved in. I, I it's like a framework that people can express themselves with configuration. So you're not tied into their roadmap. You don't have you know. So so there are a lot of platforms that are coming out there now that don't require developers. They're commercial open source. You've got you've got lots of choices. In fact, if you look at AWS. A lot of their products now are becoming very de-skilled, so that you know uh, startups with five or six people are able to create very complex business value adds. So um, yeah, the, the the experience of the two banks was different depending on which area I worked in, but but similar overall, the macro level wasn't that different. Yeah, my my experience at the time working with you and your team there was very progressive, right? It's very different to that that description that Holly's put forward, where yeah, it's a it's a place a developer goes to die. It's typically the the mantra: you go work for a bank. That's where you'll you know you go there, you'll eventually retire there, and that'll be the end of you. That definitely wasn't my experience uh, working with you and your team. Um, you really pushed your team technically. The challenges that you put forward was very very cool right i would say the division you'd set up there was i want to say carved out from the rest of the business and shielded away from that that description that harley put forward and that obviously was by design and and you obviously saw that as a as a challenge that you needed to solve right yeah yeah it was it was so you're right the the <clears throat> there's not and you see a lot of again you see a lot of the banks doing this they create these little incubators or accelerators or whatever I'm not a fan of those, typically. They tend to get killed, actually, over time, right? My view is that you work with the customer, always with the customer. Don't, like, sit off on a side and try and build something and, you know, the field of dreams kind of IT play. I, I'm not a fan of that at all. My view is that you 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 find an edge, right? So for us in, in ABSA, probably one of the biggest ones was the separation from Barclays when we had to separate. Mm-hmm. And so we could say, well, go vendor up, go buy yourself senseless full of software, uh, but it will take us 10 years to deliver it. So we were very, we won it on, we won commercial arguments for the work. So we're going to use commercial open source or open source. We created our own open source. I think apps has got like 50 open source repos now, and we're going to use cloud. And the, and the, and then we also we use we bought Workday we bought you know other things as well so we didn't just build everything but but I think your point around creating a little bubble is valid we did do that yes we did and 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 it and it created some tension which I think all I think any kind of change creates tension I think that in my in my experience all companies will mean revert over time. In, in general, right? So, so, and that's kind of why when I was thinking about like trying something else, the bit that was like sticking with me was culture. Like that, that is the, in de- technologies come and go, right? You know, it's cloud today, maybe tomorrow we all go back and build data centers. I, I don't know, right? God forbid that day comes. Yeah, I don't think it will, right? But maybe we have outposts or stuff, you know, we, I don't know, there'll be something else, right? We, we've been in technology long enough to see the cycles come through, but, the problem with a bubble is that it becomes dependent on you, and and that creates a lot of stress for you. And then and then if you go, like you you know what what happens then? And so I think you know when I was when I was thinking about like where do I want to spend the next few years, the bit that was exciting me was I I didn't want to be a bubble anymore. Actually, I wanted to be part of an organisation where mm. it was like I was just regular and. Yeah, and, and that's part of guess where I picked it. Yeah, and I guess, and I guess, being in a bubble, you you sort of fighting against the flow of the stream, and you're creating somewhat of an us v them sort of culture. Would that be a would that be a good good uh, way to describe that? It, it, it not always. You'll be surprised actually. There, there are different types of reactions to change. It's a, it's a human. You know, we we talk about technology, but actually, most of the, the issues we see are are humans dealing with change and they're either subject to it you know you've bought a new system in that that you have to start using and people don't like that they don't like to adapt or adopt new systems and then and then i i, I experienced in vehicle finance i experienced an, an amazing um cio who who was very used to working in a certain way and we said look we want to do this in open source and he embraced it i mean he, he really did and that now abs has one of the best vehicle finance platforms in in the country so I, I, you don't, you definitely 
but it's not consistent, you know? So, so it doesn't always have to be us v them. And it's actually doesn't really work that well if it is us v them. You kind of want to find someone who even begrudgingly accepts it. But if you have to drag someone on a change, it's probably not going to work. Right, right. You know, Andrew, I think that that we could go on with this podcast for two hours, right? But I want to dig into some of your 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 more your more recent passions, right? Now, I know that you're a big advocate for cloud native, and I want to dig into that a little bit more. So, Gartner talks about cloud native as as being ninety five percent of the the enterprise market by twenty twenty five. What's your What's your take? Why has that been such a big driver in your recent your recent career? There's some principles, right, that that that, that, that excite me. So I. I I've got to be careful because this could this this can spill into a very wide philosophical discussion. So let's talk. Let's try and pin it down to something that's that that organisations should look for that has an organisational benefit. So the first thing is like architecturally things that and and also cloud native is the word I've seen that used wildly inappropriately from some some vendor mm-hmm. products that are anything but cloud native. But but. What, why, what, what, what excites me about it? Well, velocity is the, is the first thing, right? That you would get, what you would typically experience if you, if you went for sort of a cloud nat- native architecture. Uh, typically, you have lower captivity. Oh, this is going to go into a big conversation now. Yes, I, I'm going to need an hour on this. The thing, okay, so, so okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to pivot the conversation. The uh-huh. thing, the thing that kind of, from a cloud perspective, the thing that's really interesting to me right now is two things identity digital identity and a universal control plane right so so nobody does the cloud they do clouds so even at absa right i i said i want to uh, i want to do i'm i'm hybrid right so don't give me hybrid jewel don't give me don't give me data center and a cloud provider and another cloud provider and try and make dns work right that's that's not going to be fun i don't want that but, what, but it didn't matter if I wanted it or not. There was compelling business cases for certain workloads to be used with another cloud provider. So I was like, makes business sense. We should try and do this. Um, and what you start to see is as your cloud journey evolves, then Workday comes in, then Salesforce comes in, then Office 365 comes in, and then suddenly your whole world explodes. You don't go from your laptop to your data center, right? You're, you go from your laptop around the world. And, and, and trying to control that, to have a control plane that manages that and can even observe it. There are very few. So I, I started to, uh, there's a company called Crossplane. I'm going to give them a little plug here. Yeah. I really was excited about the way that they were dealing multi-cloud to allow you to have cloud native architecture spanning across multiple cloud providers because there is value in doing it. I don't, I'm not saying that having multiple cloud providers is a bad thing. I'm saying the complexity overwhelms the value. And so somebody needs to solve for the complexity. And, and lo and behold, I saw this thing called Crossplane. And I was like, okay, you're very clever. I don't know. And, and, and they really solved it in a very elegant way. In, it's, 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 it's tied to Kubernetes. And it could, this is going to get really technical now. Yeah, um, let's go. You want to go? Okay, so yep. what, what I liked about it was it had a recon loop. Right, so you 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 have declarative state. You can set it up with a, uh, a a single XRD, a single resource file, a resource descriptor, and you say, right, I want uh, an RDS instance of Postgres. And you just it, it, like obviously when you do it for the API, you can you've got like a whole bunch of stuff to to to, to write down. You've got your KMS, you got but the, they've really skinned it down to the stuff that you actually need, and. And you run it, and then somebody bullets your your SQL Server or your Postgres instance, and this thing's recon loop is going. That needs to be back, and it and it and it recreates it, and, and yes. it's just it's so it's, it's such a it's such a and the beauty is it's putting it in the lap of developers. Absolutely. Which is which is even in the cloud world, I see a lot of the infrastructure guys going to owning the cloud APIs, you know, and, own, mm. and it's like actually, you know, I, I like the lowest possible friction. I, I always start with well, why can't the developer? What what is it that we're doing that adds value? What what? So if we're doing archiving for them, index optimization for them, auto scaling, you know, auto scaling can't really do for them, but if we set it up or we do their, I don't know. Uh, making sure that caches are warm across all the AZs, then great, we're adding value. But that should be automated over time. And ultimately, for me, 
the, the, the future is definitely that developers, you, not, not through a separate API, they don't jump on a command line interface and create their infrastructure. If they're a Java developer, why should they leave that environment to create their cloud infrastructure? It should be yeah. part of that. Right, right. So that talks about, okay, in, in, in our world, in the Azure world, we talk about like Bicep and then of course there's Terraform and all of these things. And and, and I'm guessing Crossplane is sort of like a, a, a wrapper around the GitOps process, right? You were saying the, 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 the vert loop that's keeping that system declaratively and the infrastructure concurrent with the design that's in the, the code, right? So I wanted to get a take from you sort of where does developer end and operations begin? in a Kubernetes cloud-native world? Or is there even such a concept as the separation of the two? I, I never believed in that anyway. So, so, so and, and, and I, I say that, I, I don't believe you should separate stuff in general. Um, and so there's three models. This is, this, is, this is now you're asking some very tricky questions. So, so even, even in my new role in AWS, right, I'm, I'm, I'm separating, I'm, 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 I'm looking after the console, I'm, I'm doing the front end, right? So, so that breaks my model. Well, not really. So, so what should happen is there's three models and two of them fail over time. Centralized fails. It's just friction, cues, fighting for priority. It becomes hyper-political, actually, and it's not very fast. Then you have federated fails over time it is much faster massive duplication and over time you create sprawl and complexity and you don't you don't you don't, so so the, there's this beautiful place in the middle that's integrated and when we were doing the separation project we wanted to create a channel for for the corporate investment bank and we're like well does everyone come to us and we do all the work for them or, you know, so we've got an FX team, we've got a payments team that want to put something in the channel. We've got a research team. Do they all have to send us their requirements and we sit there and do it and they say, oh, I didn't want it like that. So the, the right model for any developer actually and any process should be self-service. It should always be self-service. But the, the core team, the, the team that would be federated or centralized, their job is to make that service ultimately consumable an sdk to render your own front end there's still you still need to do something but you can go exponentially faster because you're not doing their stuff for them let them create their own front end let the developer fix his own issues because what, what, what if you have a devops environment you tend to see operational issues don't get dealt right because i'll just ship i'm shipping more features and eventually you get to the point of strangulation where you can't breathe. You actually, and everyone says they don't care about technical debt. I agree. I care about velocity. And anything that stands in the way of speed is problematic. And that can be a service that we need to run and own ourselves and there's someone else who's much better at it. But, but what you don't do is you don't move the responsibility. If I'm, if I'm a team that's running RDS inside AWS and I sit and I've got EC2 underneath it, I'm responsible for that. I am responsible for that, right? So I'm going to ask the ETs, I want a patch, I want this, I'll give me all the APIs so that I can manage it in the way that I want. Don't go and create, you know, like a, another little cottage industry. And I think in technology, what's powerful, if you're in a very innovative organization, they will allow divergence because you should. People shouldn't be forced to, to be chained to something, right? You know, you have to use Jim. You know, Jim is the guy that's going to supply your Linux for you. I'm like, no, I, I, I want to do my own Linux. But the nice thing about a good culture is it will heal that divergence over time. When you've got 50,000 Linux instances or 5 million, you're like, I'm dying here. I actually, my job isn't to run Linux. I'm, my job is to you know, offer RDS to people. So I think, I think that was one of the things that excited me about uh, AWS's culture is that they're very comfortable with the ambiguity of allowing people to do to have freedom but those because there's not a lot of politics people are also very comfortable to to try and get value from another team so and that's what to so going back to your original question about devops yeah that 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 is how it should be you a developer shouldn't create waste for someone else to deal he should deal everything and then, and then there is actually an operational side that he won't get to. But don't, don't, don't start with that. You know, build it in eventually. So, Andrew, let's give Holly a chance to dive so in. Andrew, I think we need to have you back for a separate talk purely based on on cloud native. 
there are two very prominent areas in the tech industry right now that myself and Guy are constantly thinking about. And one being cloud native, Guy is spending a lot of time, uh, you know, researching that and diving into that. And the other one that we really like to talk about frequently, especially with our guests, is the low-code, no-code space. And I know it's slightly different, but we're speaking about the future and where we see this industry going. What is your take on the low-code, no-code, and what do you see the impact being? So firstly, I apologize for my cloud-native answer because I, I think I needed an hour there and I ended up just skirting around the sides there. And I worry that I'm going to do exactly the same for this next question. <laughs> um, so... I'm, I, the thing is, I don't like being wrong. So, and I've got such strong opinions. And someone's going to send me this video in three years' time and say, you are so wrong, right? So I think I'm going to be wrong here. I'm not a fan. I'm, I'm really not a fan, actually. But, like, is that me? Is that just because I don't like people to be able to sell? So, and, 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 and a lot of evidence says that, that, you know, and you even see it in the cloud providers, they're now providing things that business analysts can set up. If you look at things like AWS, most dangerous people to be involved with development. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I mean, they, they would they would argue that developers are the most dangerous people to be involved in development. So, so yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for it. I think what you will see is that the types of things that you used to develop, you won't develop anymore. Things like ETL, right? Mm -hmm. Should any human being be sat there? like transforming one field to another no not really that's not yeah. so and and is it okay to let a business analyst with a front end go that should be that drag it and probably yes actually so so i'm i'm, I'm i, I want to say that it shouldn't happen but when i do see it done elegantly i'm like yeah okay we shouldn't be doing etl anymore there you go that's that is the that is the right answer so and 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 then you got then you then you the, the other thing that used to blow up with low code is like uh, things like VBA and stuff like that or mm -hmm. the, 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 they they were not very scalable actually they used to like kind of die in whatever they that, that's that's been solved a long time ago you know so, so the problem with if you if you use people who don't have machine empathy to create things uh, they will do like crazy group buys with four hundred fields in it and not appreciate. That that's going to hurt, you know, to 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 run that stuff. So, but but I see people solving this, they, they, and they, you know, and, and, and elegantly. So I think that low code solutions. There's uh, there's a few um, developer products that are out there that I've seen touted around, and I was very against them. Uh, I didn't like them. I thought they were ugly, and I didn't. I didn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so and I, I I think there'll be a thing of some sort yeah, for yeah. some types of company. The the I I much prefer things like Rust. I don't know if you've come across that. No. Uh, I, I like so if if I if I have to pick a new language to learn, it'd probably be Rust. I like it because someone very smart has architected that. They've dealt with a lot of issues that you get as a developer around threading models. It 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 doesn't run in a virtual machine. It looks, it, I'm just reading the documentation right now, it, it, it builds native images, it builds like assemblers. So, so it's it, incredibly fast. So that looks like, for me, not no code, I would say something like that without, I'd say start with no v virtual machine, no JVM, no, no, what's the visuals? I don't know what the VB or C sharp VM is called these days, but yeah, start just running on the box. That, that would be quite interesting. Right, right. Okay, so I think we need to start wrapping up. I wish we had another two hours. I wanted to get into some more of your thoughts around Kubernetes. I wanted to touch on a few other things, but we're not going to get there. So I think I think let's uh, let's start wrapping up. And just for our, our normal process here, I think what we do is we normally just dig into who you are as, an, as a person and kind of get to know you a little bit better. And how we do that is by asking a few of these questions. I'll start. Harley, are you happy to let me do that? Let's go. So what's yeah, your biggest learning right now? What's what's the what's the biggest thing that uh, you've learned recently that you that you found most valuable? I think this year has been a big year of change for me. The thing that I would tell myself, my my Andrew Baker ten years ago, would be, and I've mentioned it a few times already, about find a company with the culture matches your your value system and how you would like to work. I would say that's probably the most important thing. And I and I I didn't know what culture was. It's too woolly and fluffy and doesn't make you know. I, no one's really explained what that word means. Actually, I just remember being very happy at parts of my career where 
I was working with awesome people and, and it was like low friction. So I would say the thing that I take out of 2021 would be like, I'm going to be very strict with myself around my, you know, where, where, where I take my career. And it will only be in, in companies where the culture fits, you know, kind of my value system. I wouldn't create a bubble. I don't, I think that was my, my learning of this year. I think that's, you know, as much as you're trying to change an organization and, and kind of move them forward, I think that the, um, I think, you know, organizations are, are, are pretty concrete in nature in general. And Andrew, moving on to the next question, you've clearly a very technological person. You've got a lot of interest in a large variety of the technological space. Outside of technology and work, what is your thing? What is, what is a passion that you have on the side, a, a hobby, if you will, that really interests you? <laughs> so the, this one of them is a sad answer. So I'm going to give you the happy one. I really enjoy mountain biking. I go with my son. Uh, I'm not very good. I'm very good going uphill. Believe it or not, I'm quite a big guy, so I should be slow, but I've, I'm good on the way up. I've fallen off plenty. I have to have like guards on my arms, guards on my knees. I mean, I look like Michelin man going down the, the hill because I, and everyone is faster than me, um, but I enjoy it. I, I like in, you know, coming from the UK, we don't have scenery like you have in Cape Town it's and so every I've been here for 10 years and every time I cycle up to Kai Mountain I look around or I went somewhere where did I go the other day Banhook I went to Banhook and then, then just like it sounds a bit David Attenborough but looking around the plant life in this country is just nuts and so I like the cycling but I like it because it gets me outside it stops me getting a heart attack uh, which is awesome and um yeah, I, 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 mean, I do it with my son as well. So it's pretty, it's, it's a good time for us to hang out. And I also, no. one other thing I do, I go to Delbrook and swim in that freezing cold, you know, like at Colt Bay, there's this thing, there's this like, not pond, what do you call it? Like a little t- tidal like, like pool. A, like a tide pool, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I go there. I go there with my missus. I went there yesterday. <laughs> it said it was 16. There's something wrong with that, um, that uh, temperature thing. It was like minus 16, it was. <laughs> I'm still, my hands are still cold now, but I, those are the two things that I really enjoy doing. Yeah, I've heard it's quite invigorating. Uh, a family of mine, they do it as a, in a year, uh, every every New Year's Day in um, Guernsey, they jump and they have a swim in the sea. And I mean, that that cannot be pleasant, but apparently it's got some amazing health benefits. So I think you're onto something there. And um, so I think let's end off with a couple of quick fire questions just for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Um, I'll start with the first one. What are you reading currently and why should everybody else read this book or watch this show or listen to this person? So yeah, that was the other part that I was going to bring on the last piece. I'm, I'm, I'm 70% of the way through um, my uh, database speciality for, for AWS. And I just, I finished the machine learning one and uh, it's the first one I'm not going to sit the exam on. Uh, so I did the AWS machine learning um, course, and I, I'm not doing the exam um, because I can probably pass it, but I suck, right? And I, I don't like I don't like that. I mean, I can memorize a lot and figure out it's multiple choice, but I'm not an ML uh, expert at all. And I did the course to learn about it, and I thought that it would be more accessible than it was. Yeah, I, whoever started that industry has just why do they do why do they it's a row on a table in a day it's, it's not an observation it's a row and and the thing that goes vertically is called a column it's not an attribute or whatever else they call it and they, they've got their whole whole vocabulary and i'm like corpus corpus like, <laughs> it sounds like dead no it's yeah. text corpus is text just say text <laughs> so like I, I, the whole time and i was sitting in the course going uh, pause it. Oh, most of my courses I do on 1.5. This one I did it on 0.8 because I had to go, okay, he said corp- he means text. Uh, and so I'll, I might do the course again next year. But um, yeah, that, that, those are the two things I've done recently. And I failed machine learning before. Yeah, for me, machine learning is is uh, is much like quantum mechanics, right? If you think you understand it, you probably don't. It's it's like a black box. There's too there's too many things you can't control. It's a weird world. It's sort of like no, that's for the leave it for the engineers. So so we do have a question that that we ask in the quick fire round, which is what is your most controversial opinion? And I feel like you've just answered that with a, a bit of a an outrageous moment and rant on. Uh, I think we've got about six of them. Yeah, on 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 machine learning, but maybe to skip over that one. Andrew, who is your most professionally influential person in, in your career right now? 
so I, like that's that's weird because I, I I I don't know I like I don't think I, I I'm not like a groupy type of person you know there are people that have really impressed me that I met and I'm terrible with names so there was a guy at AWS called Quint Van I don't know what the rest of his name was but he was a security dude there Quint Van der Moff I don't know. Anyway, I I, put, I posted one of his talks on my LinkedIn profile, and I met him uh, personally. And um, and also, I know when I don't know something, and I know what I'm trying to say. And I really like the way he didn't squash me because I knew what I was saying was wrong, right? But I, I was going to get to the right bit, you know. So so and often when I hear people talk, it's a weakness in my own. I go, that doesn't make sense what you're saying. But he was so clever. And so patient, he just waited for me to explain. I was moaning about identity and access management. And I didn't have a great, I couldn't articulate what I was trying to say and why self-sovereign and stuff was really powerful. And I rambled on for ages. And he was so smart. And he said, so what you're saying is X in about two words. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I meant. Thanks for that. So he, he really inspired me. I was very impressed with him. And then there was another guy also at AWS that, that did a whole thing on DNS hybrid DNS and he did his presentation with his headphones on like, and I just like at reInvent just stood on the stage with his, with his head, headphones on and his explanation of hybrid DNS was stunning and you could see he was so excited about it so I don't think I'd like go after one person like an Elon Musk or a, you know something like that I always find that I'm inspired by many people who are passionate about what they're doing and they're able to teach people and I, I always find I'm like drawn to them Brilliant. Okay. And then the last question is, what are you currently procrastinating over? No, nothing really. This year of action. So I haven't, I don't, I'm not a big procrastinator at all. I don't, I don't have anything that I need to kind of process or, or figure out. I'm procrastinating over the question, maybe. I'm trying to see if there's something <laughs> in there. Uh, oh yeah, I did procrastinate a little bit. Where, on my new role, they asked me if I want a Mac or Windows. Um, and, and eventually, I, I, everyone else... There uses Macs, so I guess I'm going to be a Mac guy. Right. Good choice. And have you figured it out yet? Have you figured out how to use the machine yet? Well, I don't like Finder. Like, if anyone from Apple's like on this, <laughs> I cannot stand Finder. What a rubbish interface. That really sucks. Just mapping a drive, you know? I have to go, and it, and it, and it gets in this weird state where you can't connect your NAS drives, and you have to, like, restart it. So... So like, I love the command line. I love the fact I can SSH without doing some weird gymnastics with writing yeah, keys yeah. out. Mm. So that's beautiful. Command line is beautiful. But some of the front end in Apple products is either beautiful or not great. And when they get it wrong, they keep it wrong for years. <laughs> well, don't worry. Windows 11 is pretty close to the Apple uh, uh, front end now. So we're yeah. going to have the same drama. Oh, yeah, no. it's going to be no. fun. Right. And then I would like to add just one last question, right? So for a company, a software company, who's just about to dive into the cloud native world, who's looking at Kubernetes as an orchestration platform, what advice do you give us? Okay. So the first thing your company will want to do is every single engineer will want to run their own K8 cluster. They want to set themselves up. Don't do that. Do that at the start a little bit, like get awareness or whatever, but don't do that. Don't, my view is if you're a reasonable size, don't roll your own. Right. You can get OKD, you can get Rancher as well, download for free. Uh, I would say don't do that as well. I would say get a, again, again, I mean, it's going to be a big part of your company, right? So work with the guys. The license fees are not that, that big. So yeah. I, I would say that those are a couple of don'ts. And then, then I would say I would run it on, and this is, this is where it gets quite tricky. Like you, you, it starts percolating into other parts of your organization specifically storage so so i would i would say that and and load balancing is another one big big plug to k8gb by the way uh, go to k8gbio awesome piece of uh, tech for global balancing onto kubernetes but um so i would say at this point in time if you're on premise probably don't do bare metal i would put a hypervisor in there even if it was like your usual suspects i think running uh, and I know Rancher have got a project to bring out a hypervisor for, for their environment. Fantastic. But uh, we, we tried bare metal and it was great for a little bit. And then it became really ugly uh, when we do upgrades and stuff. I was like, oh, this is horrible. So don't do that. So get support. Don't do um, 
uh, bare metal. And then I would say get a team that try and create your pipelines so that there's some reuse. Don't make it a big team, four or five guys maximum and, and get them so that everyone is not getting like a, a terrible first touch of Kubernetes. Get some level of standardization in there. And then finally, if you can, I would say prob probably think about using a cloud provider. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that running your own Kubernetes clusters these days is, is really as cool as it used to be. So I would, I would yeah. go, I would find a, you know, an Azure or AWS. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the win there is obviously they look after the, the bare metal, they look after the, the hardware, so we don't have to worry about it. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. So thanks very much for your time. I think we've come to the end here. So appreciate the hour. I wish we had more time and we invite you back, of course, awesome. to talk more about uh, everything that you're doing in, in AWS. I'm sure the next couple of months are going to be pretty, pretty hectic for you. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. Thanks for the thanks for inviting me. Absolutely a pleasure. All right. Take care, guys. At Hayfully Software, we build dev teams that deliver and fix those that don't. Dev teams fail to deliver all the time for countless reasons, from lack of skills to barriers and culture, from politics to process, from silos to egos. Whatever the reason, it's time they deliver. This is why we exist. From enterprise to startups, we craft high-performance dev teams focused on end-to-end -end delivery. Visit Hayfully Software at OutsourceHS.com to learn more. You've been listening to The Agile CTO. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time. <laughs>